The uh, scripture reading for this morning is from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 21. If you would now stand for the reading of God's word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as with his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. But those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And others He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him and brought him to the the Aragopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know more. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen, and amen. Thank you, Al. I love hearing God's Word read. 
reading is preaching when you are reading the scripture. Um, well, welcome to the Parks Gathering. Glad you guys are here. I'm glad we get to open the Word of God together. Um, we are continuing in our study of Acts. This week we are in Acts chapter 17. We're going to go through verse 21 as was read. Um, last week, if you weren't with us, I want to catch you up to speed. We're picking up uh, with Paul here in his uh, missionary second missionary journey. Um, he has just left, for chapter 17, he's just left the city of Philippi. And this was a rowdy time, right? Philippi, uh, they saw miraculous salvations. Um, they saw evil spirits being uh, kicked out, cast out of people. Then a riot forms. They're accused of uh, disturbing the city. And we're going to see this. This is like the theme of Paul's life, right? It's either riots or revival wherever he goes. Riots or revival. And oftentimes it's both. Um, the Lord is working. But where the Lord is, the enemy is trying to thwart the plans of God. So the local authorities then preside over Paul and Silas being beaten with rods. They are then thrown in prison. God then sends a great earthquake, opens, literally opens up the, the, the doors of the prison. Shackles, their chains are fall off them. They're unfastened in this like incredibly prophetic moment of what God continues to do in our life today, right? Um, the prison doors uh, are slammed open. Yet they remember why they were in the chains in the first place. The glory of Christ. So instead of running out, as any of us would do, they yell out to the guard, we're still here. Don't harm yourself. And they save him from actually taking his own life in shame and embarrassment and fear. And they ultimately end up leading his entire family to believe in Jesus Christ. His whole household. And then the uh, exasperated city authorities finally just say, can you, can you please just leave our city? Uh, they can't kick him out. They can't put him in prison. They can't beat him into submission. They, so they just, please just leave. And so that's where we pick up Acts chapter 17 today. The saga continues. Today we're going to look at the next three cities Paul visits. He, uh, he, he's now uh, on his way to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and then on to Athens. And we're going to just quickly look at each of those cities. Uh, and I, what I want us to look at is how his message remains the same, but the state of the hearers greatly matters. He's preaching the same message in all of these cities, but the state of the hearers greatly, greatly matters. And I think this is going to open our eyes um, to what might impede us from hearing the word of God, what might keep us from loving with zeal and compassion those around us, not just being critical, not judging, but truly loving those around us. So I think we're going to learn a lot. We're going to kind of parachute into the text and out of the text, uh, and, and we'll get there as we go. So this stop in, uh, uh, in Thessalonica is, is quite the stop. They pass through, uh, the text says, uh, Amphipolis, Apollonia, and they arrive at their destination. This is a 70-mile journey. And just to recap what I just said, they were beaten with rods, okay, before this journey. Uh, that, this means that it says that they, they experienced many blows. 
There's a good chance they would have open wounds at this point on a 70-mile journey. When I get a blister on my toe in a hike, I want out. I don't know what we're really complaining about uh, traffic in our world, but wow, this is a different thing. These guys were committed. Bruised, but walking ahead. Paul's strategic in where they stop. Thessalonica uh, in the Roman Empire. This, this was a key city. Um, it was a key trading post. It was by the sea. There were so many people interacting um, in Rome's strategy for control economically. Uh, this, this would have been a very key and influential city. It was an important city. So Paul skips a couple cities and, and shows up at Thessalonica with the message of God. A lot of people would have been coming in and out of the city, traveling. So this is a great place to plant a seed of the gospel and watch it spread. So open your Bibles if you don't have them open. And let's read 17, uh, just 1 through 3. I want to remind us of what the text said. Now then, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and to rise from the dead, and and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is in fact, the Christ. As was his custom, he shows up and he starts this process of reasoning and explanation. This would have been lecture. This would have been argument. This would have been back and forth. It would have gotten very heated, as we'll see. Um, but they would have been going back and forth. And Paul was trying to uh, accomplish uh, giving them two bits of information. The first one is this. Why the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This is the first point he was arguing. Why the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jews knew their history. They were all waiting on the Christ. But Jesus came in a different way. A way that they did not expect. You see it in the disciples. You see it in these people. They're ready to take power. The Jews were ready to believe in a Messiah who would secure the throne at Jerusalem as the seat of power. They were ready to rule and reign with the Messiah over Rome, over all of their oppressors. They were ready for that Messiah. They weren't, however, ready for a a, a king who would come and suffer. And you can imagine Paul... He's opening up the text. He's reasoning with them. He's like, you have to see this. You can imagine him opening up Isaiah 52. Opening up Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then he's like, and see this part. Because that's talking about the Messiah. See this part. In 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. Despised. We esteemed him not. He's like, can you see this? The the Christ has to suffer, die, and resurrect for this to come to fruition. He's trying to convince them of that. So that was the theology. And then secondly, what he was trying to convince them of and reason with them on is that the Messiah was in fact Jesus of Nazareth. This is point two he was trying to get across. So he had to convince them of the theology 
And then the, the fulfillment of that theology was actually Jesus. And it sounds like a few Jews converted, a few Jews followed. It also says that several Greeks and many Greek women. Luke points this out very specifically, that women were believing here in Thessalonica, in Berea, we'll see in Athens. Last week we saw it with Lydia. Uh, These aren't just simple women, these are uh, leaders in the community. The gospel is getting to ladies because ladies are smarter. (laughs) I heard an amen. Ladies are receiving the gospel, and Luke is making this very clear. And I think it's important to point out, um, I, I'm not necessarily for sure why, but it, the Greek thinking, the Jewish thinking, uh, in the men involved here, they would have been very proud of their beliefs. They would have been dogmatic. They would have been hardened, most likely, by how they saw the world. There would have been a, a sense of pride in what they did and who they were and what they believed. Verse 5, this is their response, many of them. But the Jews were jealous. Jealous is the word. It doesn't say that they were mad, that this guy was so wrong and they needed to prove him right. It says they were jealous. The Jews were more concerned in power and control being taken than actually getting to the truth of the matter. This is the reality of the human heart. Yours and mine. We can be more bothered by losing perceived power and control than we are actually missing out on the truth. I think many of us would rather live in false realities and broken thinking than lose real comfort, lose security, lose power. But we must always be humbly reasoning. Reasoning with the scripture, reasoning with others, and protecting ourselves from bad thinking. Philippians 4 says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Because why? The Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I have here in my notes, which I'm glad because I I forgot, that there's an election coming up. I totally forgot. I can't believe I could have missed that. This has been a pleasure, right? This election series season has been a pleasure to be a part of. That's all I have to say. No, I actually think this is one of the reasons why it's been so painful. The human heart interacting in this particular cultural moment. It's been painful. You've got polarizing views. Saying, if my candidate, my policy doesn't get in play. My power's going away. Uh, my way of living is going away. Flourishing is going away for me and my community. If this doesn't happen. And so the left in general will use shame to motivate people to vote. And they'll say, if you don't think this way, you're a bigot, you don't understand people, you're not compassionate, you're, you're backwoods, you whatever. In general, shame is a tool. And on the right, in general, fear is a tool. If you don't get your candidate, your policy, you're going to lose a ton. You're going to lose your way of living. 
You won't be able to flourish like you have been in the past. Fear, shame. And both of those things, and these are generalities, but both of those things fall squarely under political rhetoric. And political rhetoric's job is to get you riled up. That is its purpose. It seeks no other purpose than to get you riled up and aggressively supporting something or defending something, being for something or being against something. That is its job. And Christians, we we just can't take that bait. We have to be smart. We have to be wise. We have to be reasonable and not take the bait of false choices. So this week, go vote if you haven't, but do so as a civic duty. There should be great tension in your heart as you cast that ballot. There should be dissonance in the Christian's heart as you vote, as you think about policy. There should be there should be this friction and dissonance. We should remember that the kingdom of God need not hitch itself to any candidate. Thank God. The kingdom of God need not hitch itself to a party or to a platform. It doesn't need it. The early Christians didn't need it. They didn't vote their way into Rome. But they served and they, they literally infiltrated every arena and influenced with love, compassion, serving. And so I want to say to you this morning, even as we enter into this week, we want to be a church that serves and endures. I want to be a part of a church that endures. Whether culture around us becomes predominantly atheist, whether it becomes Muslim or Hindu, or it's socialist or capitalist, I want to be a part of a church that is shaped to endure through it all. Not try to change the outcomes of the world so much, but to endure through it all. And let the kingdom of God do its thing. Christ builds the church. Christ protects the church. If you have any questions, you can email Kyle Radel at thecarschurch.com. We have a, a special file. <laughs> the Jews were jealous, it says. The Jews were jealous. They were upset that this gospel was messing up their world. It was stealing from them their influence, their status. And here is their unwitting but immortal compliment to Paul and Silas. This just lives on in infamy. They, says that, they say this in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down. You can just see them like gritting their teeth saying it. And the irony is they were the ones with the mob. Rioting. Angry. Ready for blood. That's the irony of all of this. They were blaming Jason who was simply hosting them. And trying to pull him into the mix. Stealing money from him. They were looking for blame. They were looking for all of these. They weren't addressing what was actually happening. They were angry. And this is what religion does to you. This is what religion does to you. This is the cost of putting your hope into a system rather than the Savior. You live in a self-constructed fantasy and call it divine. You call it Christian. You call it moral. Meanwhile, the fantasy you've bought into literally steals your very life. 
It steals your God-given time, your God-given gifts and talents. It steals your God-given resources. And it promises the very thing that your heart and my heart ache for more than anything else. That is communion and relationship with our Creator. Your heart, every human heart, aches at its base level for a relationship with the Heavenly Father. That is the fundamental place of the human heart. Eternity is written on our hearts. The Creator has written a way of living on our hearts. Intimacy with Him. Religion is this manipulation, and we see it. We, we even notice it in ourselves. This is why the gospel is so threatening to the subversive, manipulative plan of the enemy. It's so threatening. The, the enemy says you've got to add up, you need to work hard, you need to fix yourself. And all the while, it says you, you should find your purpose in that, your meaning in that. At the same time, simultaneously saying you'll never add up. And in fact, you should be so ashamed of the reasons why. You should look at your life and be so ashamed at the reasons why you'll never add up. He says both of those things to you. And the gospel comes in and just blows it up. And it says, Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. His innocent life. Or his, sorry, his perfect life. His innocent death and his victorious resurrection. He did it all. And then he says, share in the reward. Share in my reward. We sing it. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So the upset Jews go and grab anyone who enjoys a good fight. <laughs> they, they, they go get a mob together. So to be clear, the Jews, the guys that are upset because the truth of the God that they profess to follow is messing up their way of living. They then go find people that aren't even aware or connected to the details. They don't know what's going on. It says, wicked men of the rabble. These are city folk that no doubt are shamed by their own bad life choices. Who make perfect candidates to aggressively fight and attack somebody else. Because we all know and we see it all the time that there is some level of meaning that you can get from fighting for something. Even if you don't have any clue what you're fighting for. Right? Have you ever been guilty of this or you grab a hold of a piece of information and, it, and it's compelling enough to make you say, I, I've got to say something about this. You know what? I've got to post something. Somebody needs to know this. And all to find out that you have no idea what you're talking about. I know. None of you have. Um, but it's just our tendency. We find meaning in being zealous for something. But often that zealousness is misplaced. So they grab this group. Sounds like the internet, to be honest. Sounds like Twitter. And they rile them up. 
I think if we're honest about our capacity, we would recognize that we've filled ourselves up with so much information and constant noise that we cannot think critically enough. We can't know enough. And we've just not been honest with our limitations. But we are constantly consuming, constantly before information, before ideologies, before philosophies, before this and that 24-hour news cycle. Go, 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 scroll, scroll, scroll. New stuff, new stuff, new stuff keeps coming at us. And we think that we can, like, deal with that. But we are just the same, right, candidates, to be swayed by just about anyone who's remotely persuasive, cunning. So I pray that we withdraw away from that way of living. This mob was zealous. They were dangerous. They would have captured Paul and Silas. They would have probably killed them. They probably would have murdered them. They would have been martyred here, but that wasn't God's plan. So Paul and Silas are urgently sent on by night to the city of Berea, which we'll see is maybe who we should be more like, the Bereans. This is 51 miles away. So these guys are hikers. Let me just remind you, they're hikers. These guys are walking all over the world. Let's read verses 10 and 12 here. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Here again, I want, I want us to see the spirit of the hearers has as much to do with the success of the preaching as the preaching itself. The way in which the hearer hears has as much to do with anything. It's the Spirit's work, but the hearer's posture matters. The people of Berea were more noble, it says, than those of Thessalonica. They were teachable. They were reasonable. They were learners. Here are two different groups, Thessalonica and Bereans, in the same relative geographical area, receiving the same message from the same preacher. One rejects it and forms a mob, and then one receives it. In, the, in, in Berea, the gospel was accepted far more readily. And we don't necessarily know why. Uh, uh, Cicero, a Roman uh, statesman, theologian, or uh, historian of this time, he called the town of Berea the isolated town, which I think is really interesting and we might need to consider. Berea was a town off the beaten path a bit. It was 51 miles off the main highway. It wouldn't have had the same exposure to constant flow of information like these other towns. And we'll see it very acutely in Athens. They were able to receive. They were not simple, nor were they uneducated. The word he uses is noble. Um, it's not talking about their noble birth. It's not talking about their status in society. It's talking about the fact that they were seriously faithful they were seriously studious. They were seriously focused. They were humble. They were humble. 
What Paul did is Paul interpreted the scriptures before the Bereans. They listened with a skeptical and honest mind. They sought to understand and examine and made the scriptures the test of his interpretation. That's what you need to do. Anytime I open this this book, anytime Kyle or anybody else opens this book, you need to take what we've said and bring it to the scriptures. Because this is what the Bereans did. They, they dug in. They dug in. And they said, well, what does this mean? And if he says this, we need to go here. And, and they dug in and they sought the whole counsel of God's word. They were cross-referencing. I want to show you this. I'm sure many of you have seen this, this um, graph um, before. But uh, a guy started cataloging the cross-references in Scripture. Uh, and what started out as, a, as an attempt to have a functional piece of data, it actually became something completely uh, unreadable it, data-wise, but beautiful. There's over 63,000 cross-references in our Bible. Our Bible was written over 15 centuries with over 30 different authors. There is such diversity, yet incredible harmony. Isn't that beautiful? Color-coordinated, all these represent the chapters of the Scripture. Cross-referencing each other in alignment with each other over 15 centuries And this is what the Brians were doing. They were approaching something like this. And they were saying, what does it say here? What does it say there? There was harmony. They agreed. Their soul and spirit agreed. This quote from David Neinhaus, I think, eloquently imagines um, what biblical literacy would look like. Because biblical illiteracy is a problem today. He says this, we want to create a community ethos of habitual, orderly, communal ingestion of the revelatory text. We do so in the hope that the Spirit of God will transform readers into hearers who know what it is to abide before the mirror of the Word long enough to become inscripturated doers. That is, people of faith who are adept at interpreting their individual stories and those of their culture through the grand story of God as it is made known in the Bible. Inscripturated doers. I don't even know if that's a word, but I like it. <laughs> Interpreting our story. May we be like this. Not grabbing a hold of an idea and then trying to find a text to back it up. But seriously, looking at the word and letting the word read us. The Bereans understood that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. They understood that. They understood that they, 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 they could not love a God that they didn't know. And to know God, you have to put yourself before the Scriptures. And not try to dig out your meaning, but let it read you. Let it read your life and let it tell the story. We want to do this. I pray that we're like this. And we interpret and discern our life by the Scriptures. We understand the living ideas of this book, this word. And it says daily they did this. It didn't say they came on on the Sabbath and heard one person talk about it. It says daily they took it upon themselves to do this. When you're before the scriptures regularly, this isn't legalism. This is how you know God. When you're before the scriptures regularly, you are equipped in every season to faithfully follow Christ And to walk in power.
Amen. I think it's important to point out here um, that Paul, in all of these cities, is not watering down his message. He's preaching one singular message. Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus is king. Paul is living out Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Right? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first, and then to the Greeks. Paul is literally living this out. So speaking of Greeks, let's move on to Athens. Over 270 miles later, he arrives at Athens by land and sea. He gets to Athens and he says to those assisting him, send Silas and Timothy immediately. We don't exactly know why, but we can imagine Athens was a city to be reckoned with. This was different. This was a big boy. As Paul entered the city, one of the first sights that he would have seen and been confronted with was the massive Greek Parthenon, which still stands today. And in front of it would have stood a huge bronze statue of Athena with a flaming crown staring down at him. He would have walked past temple After temple, shop after shop, selling idols and trinkets and charms and sacrifices to countless gods. Uh, A humorous account of this city is that it says, At Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. There were gods everywhere. And as a catch-all, they even had an altar to an unknown god, Agnostos Theos. There was debate on whether this un-Greek god could have been this God or that, but that was the point. It was left up to interpretation. Whoever, whomever. 500 years prior to this moment in history, there lived a man named Protagoras. Protagoras was a a forerunner of Plato, of Aristotle. He was a Greek philosopher. 500 years prior to this moment, uh, we find Paul in. And he's famously quoting, quoted saying this, Man is the measure of all things, of the reality of those, that, of those which are, and of the unreality unreal, of those which are not. Greek philosophy. Basically, man decides what's true. He goes on to say this specifically about the Athenians. Specifically about the Athenians. He says this, the Athenians are right to accept advice from anyone. Since it is incumbent on everyone to share in that sort of excellence, or else there can be no city at all. One of our guiding principles is to receive the truth from anyone. Man decides what is true. Man needs to listen to as many theories, philosophies, religious ideologies, strategies, and decide what is true for themselves. Each one coming to his or her own conclusions. Relative truth. None of this sounds familiar, though, for us today, right? I mean, this is so primitive thinking. These are like cavemen. It's embarrassing. Let's read verse 21. We have it up on the screen. Verse 21. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing Something. Yeah, that's not familiar at all. 
Don't we have the same tendency? I, 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 are we addicted to, to new information? What's new? It's coming down the, the scrolling pike. It's coming down the news cycle. I think we are. I think we're flat out addicted. We don't see ourselves that way. We just see ourselves uh, as enlightened. Critical thinkers. Autonomous thinkers, in fact. Yet it seems that we are still just products of the human heart in the slipstream of the world around us. Let the Holy Spirit just show us. Can you see how we are in so many ways just like the pagan Athenians of 2,000 years ago? There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. It's all been done. It'll be done again. What's your truth is your truth. What's mine is mine. It's relative to how you see the world. We don't need to butt heads. Reality left up to human interpretation. Just feel your way through truth. Lean on your own understanding. You've heard this before. Uh, we've talked about this before. Relative truth. Everybody knows it. We all understand kind of the concept. But have you received it? Because when I hear this, I can identify one, two, three, four, five uh, people that I know kind of struggle with this. But have you received it? Have you reasoned with your own heart that this Greek way of thinking might be how you think? It might be how you approach the scripture. It might be how you approach your very life. It might be how you approach God himself. This is what we tend to do. We look to God for insight. We look to Christianity, religion, for insight on how to live out our plan. Rather than throw ourselves at his feet and say, your will be done in every season, in every moment. If you approach God as an advisor to your plan, you will soon find out that he is your adversary. If you approach the scriptures as tips for living, you will find out that it is actually against you. God is not trying to help you live out your dreams. He's trying to give you an altogether better one. He, he has no interest in you living your best life, your vision of the best life. He wants to scrape it off the foundation and give you a whole new one. A whole new vision for living. A whole new way of doing things. A whole new dream. So this is where we find Paul. A city committed to everything and nothing at the same time. Spirituality and religiosity run amok exhaustively trying to save themselves by an endless glut of made-up gods and goddesses, the Athenian Jews making little to no noise about the one true God, Yahweh, here in, in Athens. Their voices drowned out by a constant noise of culture and spiritual talk. Death by too many ideas. I'm reminded of Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away 
from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Paul gets to Athens after being beaten, imprisoned, having exhausting conversations for months at a a time. You could see him kind of looking over his shoulder, kind of wanting to take a deep breath. And then he turns around and he faces Athens. And you, you just see his jaw drop. He's waiting there. You can just see him like literally like, Doing this, going, what am I going to do here? I'm just by myself. I need to do something. It says in verse 16, take a look. Verse 16. Paul's spirit was provoked. This is the same root word used to describe the sharp disagreement he had with Barnabas that actually led to them splitting off. So this... There's certainly this connotation of um, anger, acute anger, exasperation. Um, This word provoked is used in other places throughout our scripture. If you cross-reference, you'll see that God was provoked by the sin and the idolatry of the people of God, of the nations. He was moved to action. It didn't work out well for those cities. Thankfully, Jesus received those blows for us. Paul was passionate for the Lord, so he went to work again. In the marketplace, in the synagogues, enduring insults, again, enduring indignation, and maybe the worst of all, enduring indifference. Could there be a more crushing thing to an American in 2020 is, you babbler, you have nothing to say. We'll get to see Paul's sermon next week, ultimately a a really great TED talk at the Oropagus, but this week what I think is important for us to see is that when we make ourselves available to the Lord in submission, He will give you a new dream, a new vision for your life. Um, And He will use you. And it will be an incredible adventure. And He'll use you to turn the world upside down. Wherever your world is, whatever you do, He will use you. He's faithful to His Word. He wants to fulfill His promises with the church, with Jesus' church. And so he invites us in. He's inviting us in. He's inviting you in today to drop down, drop your vision of living, pick up his vision, and then go with him on a journey. He'll use you. And you definitely don't have to stand up on a silly stage like this. Because we see Paul, a stranger in this land. He had no clout. He had no influence. He had no power. He was scoffed at. Yet he planted gospel seeds 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman world that we are fruit of today. Isn't that incredible? 
He had no influence. Yet he preached Christ, death, and resurrection. He preached the gospel. And we are, we are beneficiaries of that gospel seed in Athens. So the question I think we, we need to land on and ask ourselves is how do we see the world around us? And are we able to pick our head up from our own life? The enemy wants to keep you very busy. He can't steal your soul, but he can steal your time. He can steal your capacity. So he wants to keep you busy. Are you, are you able to look up from your busyness? I mean, we just went through a pandemic and we all quarantined. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do it again. I have no idea, but the point remains we still kind of picked up everything we, we dropped off. A lot of things we dropped off. And what God is looking for is humble Agile people. And when I say agile, I mean people that haven't tied themselves so much to this world and the ways of this world and the way the, 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 the things that this world values that they're able to detach. They're able to detangle themselves. And there's not so much collateral damage when they do it. Often we look at our entanglements on this world and we look and we say, it's just too much. I can't, I can't stop this moving train. God's looking for agile people. And he wants to detach you from this world so he can attach you to his plan, to eternity. He wants to detangle many of you. And that, can that just be like a prayer? God, detangle us from all of the things that we tied ourselves to. And, and, and the Holy Spirit will tell you what those are. I'm speaking in generalities, but the Spirit of God will tell you what those things are. And so we need to be before him. And we need to repent. And we need to humbly posture ourselves before the Lord and say, God, help me see like you do. Um, help me be a person that is provoked to action, to love, to, to actual work in this community. Let me be provoked. Cool. That's it. That's all I've got. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love your word. Wow, it just, it reads us. God, I, I, I admit that approaching these scriptures a couple weeks ago, I, I didn't see but surface stuff, but you allow us to see. Your spirit illuminates. So I pray that you would help us. You would help us be hearers. You would help us be inscripturated doers. That we would put ourselves before you and your word. And that we would allow that to actually show us how to live. And, and I pray that you would speak very plainly, acutely though, to each heart here in this room. On what that looks like for their life. You do not speak in generalities. You speak right to the heart. Your word penetrates the, the dark places of our heart. And illuminates it. Your word goes into the very core of who we are, speaks right to our soul. Awaken our bones, God. Awaken this church. Awaken us. Whatever it takes, God. 
We love you. Go with us, God, this week. Give us your vision and your dreams. In your name, amen. Amen.